Yeah, Ephesians 5. Let's jump into that, shall we? Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. And let's make sure that we understand something very clearly from last week and from several weeks. And that the call of the Christian is to walk in love as Christ loved us. There can be no mistaking that. In fact, this is the summation of and foundation for our different kind of life. And we've been seeing this different kind of life since Ephesians 4, verse 1. It runs all the way through at least chapter 5, verse 2, which is where we were last week. We've seen it in phrases like walking worthily, walking holily, walking distinctly, walking sacrificially. All those words are just words that help us understand what he's after in this chapters. And that is that we're to walk differently. We've been called to a different kind of life. But different from what? Can we ask that plain and obvious question? Different from what? Well, this is what Paul pointedly, and if I could use this word, provocatively does in the next 12 verses of Ephesians 5. He lays out for us what is the opposite of walking in love. And in a phrase, it's walking in lust. So Ephesians 5, verses 3 to 14, we're going to see that this describes the person who isn't living on the spectrum of sacrifice. They're living in the sphere of self-satisfaction. Now keep in mind as we approach these verses that this is a continuation of thought. Now he does begin with the word but, so it's a contrasting continuation. But it still is continuing this thought that God's people are different. What he's going to employ now are some new analogies. We may call them some new synonyms. For instance, you're gonna see the words light and darkness start showing up. It's just a way to expand our understanding of how different should we really be? And the answer, as different as light is from darkness, as different as love is from lust. Let's read. Ephesians 5, 3 to 14, we'll only look at verses 3 to 6 today, but I want to read the full context. We'll cover the rest next week. Here's what God's word would say to us. But sexuality, excuse me, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. As is proper among saints, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, 
Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Fantastic set of 12 verses that I believe really lay out for us four realities concerning light and darkness. Let me show you the four realities. Can I? We're only going to talk about the first one today, but I want you to have at least a heads up about where we're headed for the next two weeks. Here are the four realities Paul discusses and addresses in these 12 verses as he continues the thought of what a different kind of life looks like. The first reality is that darkness depends upon deception to thrive. You see this in verses 3 to 6. The second reality that darkness necessarily is distanced from light, 7 to 9. In verses 10 and 12, we see that darkness demands discernment from those living in the light. And the final reality is that deliverance from darkness comes through the light of Christ. That's verses 13 and 14. We're going to address the final three next week, Lord willing. This week, can we just look at this first one? What Paul really emphasizes between verses 3 and 6, that darkness depends upon deception to thrive. Now, here's how I draw this from these four verses. I want to show you what I think is a visible way to kind of understand these four verses. Because what we have here really is a list of six sins. We'll call them six sexual sins. And they're cornered by four cautions. So perhaps you want to mark in your Bible, draw this in your journals. I'd encourage you to have a picture of it. Do something to remember this because this really helps the the verses, three through six, kind of lay out for us. Uh, as we dissect them. But understand something, church. We don't want to be just a church that dissects the text. We want the church to dissect us. Hallelujah. Amen. And sometimes we can, if we're not careful, just get full of knowledge, word meanings, um, textual um, intent. And we leave thinking, oh, I know what that means. And, And we've not let the text actually dissect us. So yes, I enjoy and will continue to dissect the text with you but only under this, um, um, with this promise that you and I will let the text dissect us. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. There we go. That's the answer we're looking for. We want the Word of God to change us, and I know it does and it will. So notice in this kind of boxed diagram, there are six sexual sins. I think the first three are are sins with our body. They're action sins, we'll call them. I think the last three are verbal sins. I think they're all sexual sins. I'll explain why in a minute. We could have some difference of opinion on some of these, so no problem if we do. It won't change the meaning of the text. The first three sins he lists as sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. Now, I think Paul is aiming at the Christian's sexual ethic here. And establishing the fact that one of the primary ways we are different than the world, than those who aren't believers, than our former life is in our sexual ethic. That's why he kind of takes aim at a number of these sexual sins. It's one of the primary ways that we are different. Sexual immorality here more than likely points to fornication, which is illicit or unbiblical sex before marriage. Now, I admit to you, this is a overarching term used. It's the word pornea, and it has been used at times to describe a a range of sexual sins. However, I could trace a line for you through Scripture where this very word often is used to talk about illicit sexual activity before marriage. Um, and, And so I tend to think, because of that line that we trace 
um, showing that this word is used in that specific way. Like one time he talks about fornication and adultery. And when he lists those two together, the word for fornication there is this same word. So I don't think in Paul's mind he's thinking just general sexual sin. I personally believe what he's pointing at here is sexual sin before marriage. He's saying it's off limits. It's not to be named among the family of God. So if you are in the boat of the culture and you think, well, you know, there's a lot of freedom with our sexual activity before marriage. We can experiment. Uh, actually, you're completely wrong. Purity is the call from God. And sexual fornication is wrong. It's sin. Paul here then moves to impurity, which I think describes a, a further degradation or perversion of sexual immorality. It's used about six times in the New Testament. I base my understanding of this word on the fact that it's used in Romans 1. The word impurity is used to describe the further degradation into homosexuality and lesbianism that comes from saying no to God repeatedly. Same word here. So I see him talking about fornication, a further perversion of that, and then covetousness, which is this greed. And I think in this sense, he's speaking and thinking of sexual greed, which drives sexual immorality and impurity. So we act upon what we want. He calls this later in the text, idolatry. And so this person is just greedy and selfish and lustful for sex with no restraint. This is what they're embracing. This is what they relish in. This is an idolatrous person who sees sex as their God. He then lists three other types of sins. Notice it begins a new sentence in verse four, which is why I think filthiness, foolish talking, and crude joking really combine to talk about verbal sins regarding sex regarding God-created intimacy between a man and woman in covenant marriage. Notice he talks about filthiness and foolishness. I think this is two kinds of talk. You may see filthiness as another action and foolish talk as a separate thing. I think that where we may have a difference of opinion, no problem. I tend to see the new sentence beginning and the fact that he says that we should not let filthiness nor foolish talking. He's probably describing the kind of talking in general, whether it's degrading filthy, rotten kind of talk, or whether it's this humorous kind of sarcastic talk about sex. And, and the minute I said both those things in my study and my time with the Lord, and I think even in this room now, did your mind not just go right to our culture? Like, is that not our culture? I mean, it seems as if there's nothing sacred about the God-ordained means of procreation and enjoyment between a married couple. We're either talking extremely dirty about it or we're making fun of it. It's like, it's, it's like we're either foolishly talking about it in a humorous way or we're just, a, we're crass. Perhaps the third item here, crude joking. So I think Paul has in mind this, this target where he says that the largest and most primary way that we're different is in our sexual ethic. And so not once should these things be named among God's people. That's how different we are. Notice how it's, these sins are boxed in with four cautions. I call them cornering cautions. Can I just walk you through them briefly? It says it's not to be named among you. It says they're out of place. It says for these things, the wrath of God comes. 
And it says that if you are involved in these, that you have no inheritance. Those are stark. They're sobering. They should wake you up. It's like a blow to the chin, like, whoa, wait a minute. Now, let me, let me make some comments about this. I want to be texturally honest and have pastoral integrity here about what we're looking at. As you look at these words, it's clear that Paul is speaking of those who do not belong to Christ. These are unbelievers. And yet he's addressing this to the church. And so the, the, the hint, the, the ambiance of the text is that we all know something is true. This is how unbelievers live. It's what you can expect from them. They don't have the spirit of God. They don't have the seed of God. They're not different, but you are. So these things should not be part of our spiritual family life. And yet he says, it seems as if some of you are thinking maybe it could be, or maybe it can be, or that it should be. Because really, as you read the verses, the, the cautions seem to indicate to us Paul is trying to correct something. So I want to make sure we adopt that tone this morning. We adopt that posture that though you may say, Todd, I know I'm a believer. There may be times that we've been deceived by these very kinds of sins and we've fallen into sexual sin. I don't think that means when you intermittently experience that struggle and you, and you sin, I don't think that means you're un, an unbeliever. God keeps us through our sin, amen, right? But I think the thing you've got to wrestle with is this. It is, it is describing, though, those who, who embrace and relish and live continuously without conviction in these sins. And if that's you, even if you're in church in a brown chair in a building with the name First Family Church on it, even if you're around and in the middle of believers, if that's you, that you continuously relish in these sins, you've never felt convicted about them, you embrace them, it's your God, you're not a Christian. Regardless of where you drive on Sundays at 9.30, what small group you go to, or how much money you give. I say that to you pastorally, frank, and sincerely. This is the point of the text. It is written to Christians, so there's a warning there about deception, but it's clear he's talking about unbelievers. So I need you to kind of hold those in your hands as we kind of work through to, to see what he's, what, you know, kind of this take-home warning, we'll call it later. Hold those in both hands, wrestle with them. Notice that in, in this list of sins, he only lists one godly trait. Isn't that kind of odd to you? He talks about Thanksgiving as being like this antidote or like this um, um, weapon against speaking sarcastically, humorously, wrongfully about Sex, like you don't speak dirty or, or foolishly or crudely. Instead, he says, give thanks. And, and I just want to say this about that. It's interesting to me that Paul inserts only one really godly trait here in the midst of all these sins. Don't ever underestimate the power of a grateful heart in your battle against sin. Gratitude is a supremely treasured spiritual weapon. Now, there's another reason I think that Paul only lists one godly trait here in the midst of these six sinful habits. It's because, listen very carefully, I don't think Paul is aiming here to describe or define the sins. I need every ear listening, every eye watching. I don't think Paul's point here um, is to try to help us understand specifics about the sins. I think what he's aiming at 
It's helping us understand more about the danger and deception contained in these sins. In other words, we could say it like this. It's primarily about what the sins indicate than perhaps uh, how the sins operate. And if you find these sins present and ruling and dominating in your life year after year, if you find that you love them and you relish them and that's your God, the sense may be for you to think, well, I guess I can just have those and be a Christian. And Paul's point, I'm just a delivery boy. Hear the message. Paul's point is that can't happen. And so he has these four cornering cautions And I might add, he has two other stern warnings. Look at verse five. What does he say in verse five? You may be sure of this. The implication is you may have a tendency to think, well, this is not really sure. I don't know this is, I can bank on this. Maybe I can embrace lust and love. Maybe I can walk like this and walk like that. He said, no, 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 no. You can be sure of this. You can't. Look at verse six. Here's the other stern warning. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Do you see that? The implication being, there are those who want to make you think you can have both lifestyles, but those words hold no weight. They're empty. Here's the bottom line truth of these first four verses. And it's, it's sobering, guys. I mean, this is the kind of preaching that you hold your toes up away from your chair, off the floor, You're kind of shielding, you know, we're taking blows on the chin here. I'm just bringing you the the truth of these first four verses. That deception is always in play. It's always in play for those who aren't God's people. And And the frank truth is, it's always in play if you are God's people. We are always being attacked. We're always being Uh, lured by Satan's deceptive and disguised schemes. And what you need to realize is that if you're giving in to these sexual sins and you have been for most of your life, if this is how you live, if you relish this, if this is your God, you're being deceived into thinking that you're a Christian when you're really not. Maybe you actually are a Christian and there's a struggle in you and, and you just, you battle these That's a possibility too. What I want you to see is that in both cases, deception's in play. And this is Paul's point. It's not to necessarily describe the sins. It's to show the deception of them. So hear this loud and clear, first family. Deception is always the tactic of darkness. It needs darkness to thrive. Excuse me, darkness needs deception to thrive. And if light comes into the picture, if there's exposure, man, darkness runs away. As long as there's deception, disguising, and darkness will thrive. We could say it another way. We could say it like this, that deception is always the tactic of the dark side. And right now, most of you have thought, oh, Star Wars illusion, okay, right? Now, I'm not a Star Wars guru. I had to ask some guys on our staff to give me the, the lowdown on it. I've seen a, a few of them, maybe. Um, I know enough to know this. The main plot is the deception from the emperor to Anakin. 
which eventually becomes the reason he is now, he becomes Darth Vader. Do you recall how the deception worked? The vision of his wife dying and the emperor over time posing as a friend, making Anakin think that the only way he could save his wife's life was if he trusted the powers of the dark side. He would make him think that the Jedi were evil. They didn't trust him. You can't trust them. And so the end game of that is like, okay, we'll just go to the dark side. The whole thing is rooted and steeped in deception. Now, we watch that in a movie. We turn the lights on. We're done with it. But that's not real life. You play around with the deception in real life, and it's a destructive uh, end. This is how Satan works. He's always showing you an illusion. He's giving you a false picture. I'd remind you in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, Satan's called an angel of light. He'll never show you the real thing going on at the beginning. He never will. John 8, says he's the father of lies. So you can be sure of this. Satan will never tell you the truth. Never. He's going to come to you deceptively, disguisingly, every single time to make you think something that's actually not true, which is why Paul says here, you can be sure of this, let no one deceive you, and then gives these four cornering cautions. Paul is concerned about the church. They don't believe something that's actually not true. I've seen this in my own life. I took some time this past week to deliberately think back upon the times when God's sanctification of my life seemed to be on steroids. And I do believe that there are times when we grow at really quick paces for different reasons. Uh, like I said, it's like sanctification on steroids. God just is very um, aggressive with us in a divine way. And, and we just experience incredible growth in a short amount of time. And I begin to ask myself, in those moments, moments, was there a common element? And there was. You know what it was? What I discovered just in some kind of informal research into my own life, that each time God just really um, worked in, in a mighty way in my life internally, he every time pulled the curtain back and showed me what was really going on. It was always some exposure of deception and then a revelation like, wow, God, thank you. And then my trust and faith grew I ran from those sins and, and God just like was, you know, injecting me with spiritual steroids, so to speak. I remember over 30 years ago, a newly married man, no children. And I was speaking in different youth groups. I would speak at summer camps. I really enjoyed that. I was a youth pastor in Atlanta. And so sometimes my travel would take me through the Atlanta airport. And this is before pornography became primarily digital. This is back when the printed page was the main way you viewed it. And I can recall vividly uh, going in and out of the airport and just feeling a pull to go inside those bookstores that are in the different terminals and wanting to look at those magazines. And the false thought in my head like, hey, that'll be satisfying. That'll be fulfilling. At the same time, this conflicting emotion like that would not be right. That's not healthy. That's not good. But I felt this lure and this pull I mean, every time. I remember one time stopping in front of a bookstore in the Atlanta airport and thinking, should I go in there? Should I pull one of those magazines off? I've got some time before the flight. 
And the Lord just giving me an end game picture and saying to me, if you go in there, here's what the end of that cliff looks like. A dishonored wife, you're replacing her with a picture. Kids that won't trust you one day, you're, you're defaming my name. Like it, it just there was nothing good about the end of this road. It was like God just pulled the curtains back and says, you want to see that? Here's what those pages are really like. And in all transparency, an incredible distaste came to my mouth. Like, God, I don't want any of that. I'm like every other guy in this room. We have to battle the flesh every day. We have to fight against lust. And in that moment, man, I was so thankful that God pulled back the curtain on what Satan's really trying to do. They would not have been satisfying or fulfilling. It's a, it's, it's a dream. It's not even real. And I would instead have a hurt wife. Like, there's nothing about that that I want. Does that make sense? And man, it just, like, I want to get this out. And I just walked right away. And it was a level of victory that I had never known before. I praise God he pulls the curtain back on things like that. The same thing happened when I was dealing with my self-control issues. My temper, and I had other appetite issues too. This is about 15 years ago, and I was sitting outside East Elementary talking with Julie, and just God had just really just worked me over on some things and showed me that my lack of self-control was really putting my entire life in a vulnerable position and our family. You know, Proverbs says this, that a man without self-control is like a city without walls. And when the Lord pulled back the curtains of, of my inability to control my anger, he said, Todd, you're open to any other sin. You're defenseless right now. I just remember crying out to God for him to make deep character change. I didn't want to have the kind of life where it was rage and outbursts. So God had to really kind of dig down deep to show me what was really going on. Selfishness. Same thing's true in regards to making your work an idol. I've done that. Struggled to make sure church keeps its proper place. And when I say church, my, my role is pastor, my job. And trust me, pastors can sometimes take spiritual things and make them idols quicker than anything in the world. And there have been times I've tried to find too much significance and too much meaning in this and, and what could come with it. The platform and those things can appeal to the wrong uh, desires in a man. The Lord said, Todd, you, you're not going to find significance and meaning over a long period of time with those kinds of things. The people who read what you write or hear what you say, they're not going to be there when you're 90 over in Vintage Hills. No offense to you guys, okay? And I kept thinking, I'm putting the wrong emphasis on the wrong people. I want to be a good pastor and a good shepherd. I want to work hard, but not at the sacrifice of the right people at the right time. And I remember years ago, God just saying, give the right people the right amount of time in the right way. And just relieving the pressure of, uh, of, of thinking that your work is, is the most important thing in the world. Those are three areas that when I looked at them, it was God pulling the curtain back and showing me, here's what's really going on. What I'm saying to you is this. Exposure is a really good thing. Having your eyes open to what's really going on is a beautiful thing because we see that really what's happening is we are being deceived to think something's true that's not really true. And in this text here, here's the deceptive temptation that Paul's laying out for these believers in the church to think that you can walk sacrificially in love while at the same time walking selfishly in lust. And his point is, that can't happen. Not a chance. 
And right now, you're probably thinking, well, I think I know somebody who, who is. No, you know somebody who's deceived. You can be sure of this. Do you see how quickly we are to kind of resort to our own human understanding, to our experiences? Instead, let's rely on God's word. Let's hear what he says to us this morning. Again, hard-hitting, nail-biting, yes. But in a culture that wants to make sex just another thing that anybody can do in their own way where there's no rules, I'm thankful that God has parameters for our own good and his glory. And there is truth and there are lies. There is a right way and there is a wrong way, church. So I just want to make sure you understand, this is the temptation that they're facing, the deceptive, disguised temptation that they're having to deal with. Can sinful habits continuously rule in the life of the believer? Can we just embrace a life of no restraint, of sexual lust and selfish living? Can we just embrace that and say, hey, I'm part of God's family. The answer is no. It's not to be named once among you. It has no place. And if that's you, you have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or God, and the wrath of God is coming for you. That's why a take-home warning is so in order at this point. Jot this down. Commit it to memory. Make no mistake, first family. Relishing sexual sin and embracing selfish lust has no place among the children of God. Remember, this is contrasted against a life of walking in love, what we'd call just God-like sacrifice. So as you look at these two ways to live, which one sits on the throne of your life? Which one do you relish and embrace and worship and long for? I'm not talking about intermittent moments. I'm not talking about honest struggles. I'm talking about a, a conscientious commitment to a certain way of living. And if that certain way of living is relishing in sexual sin and embracing selfish lust, that has no place in the family of God among the children of God. Don't get mad at me. I'm just a delivery boy. This is clearly what scripture says through four cautions and two warnings about these six sins. It's my aim to help us live as distinctly as possible in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation. I want to shine as a light in the world, don't you? So church, are you being deceived? Have you thought these two things can coexist? I want to tell you this morning, they cannot. And you are either not a genuine Christian or you've not been up front and admitted like, man, I'm just, I'm under constant conviction. I've got to do something. That's actually a good sign that you belong to God. It's called discipline, chastening. It's a sign you have relationship. If that's your case, realize you've, you've been deceived as well and come out of that into the light. Or maybe you've never been born again. Man, run to the Father of lights who will give you life. My point is this. If this describes you, if you think both can exist, 
Here's what you should do. I would just jump to verse 14. We'll say more next week, but verse 14 gives us the clearest answer. Look to Christ who will shine on you. Amen, church? Look to Christ. And here's Paul's reasoning. Because Christ, he's the God of all light. James describes the Father as the Father of lights. Jesus Christ is described as the way, the truth, and the life. Hear this, church. Christ is impeccably truthful. There's not a hint of deceit in him. In fact, he is so truthful that not only does he not lie, the Bible says that God cannot lie. You talk about a comfort. You talk about a a refuge and a shelter to those who have to battle Satan and his deceptive, disguising ways. We have a God who cannot lie. He is inherently always truthful. And you run to God, you run to Christ, you will get truth. He can be nothing other than truth. And that's why I encourage you to run to the Father, run to Jesus, run to Christ. Let his light set you free from the lies of the enemy. Let his light expose and break the chains of deceit. Let him release you from the strongholds of Satan's disguised traps. Yes, every bit of your freedom and forgiveness is found in Christ. Oh, run to him. What does that look like? Perhaps I'll let this story of an FSCer answer that question. Watch the screen, would you? I was in elementary school, about nine years old, uh, jumping on the trampoline in my backyard with a friend who had brought pictures of his dad's pornographic magazine with him and he showed me on the trampoline jumping. And at that point, it opened the door because I had not even had conversations with my parents about this. And so it, um, it became a place of, of shame and hiding that at that time. And the older I got, the more involved with church activities I got, the more that I would hide that. Um, I got to the point of thinking the lie from the enemy in all of this was that, well, if I just settle down with a girlfriend and that's the one that I end up marrying, then everything's gonna be great. So I met Karis and for three and a half years that we dated, I still struggled with it. Oh, well, when we get married, now I'm gonna be able to enjoy um, a sexual relationship with my wife and it's gonna be wonderful. It, it didn't stop. Got to a point over that span of time that I believed that my whole life, this was how I was gonna have to deal with it. And there was a, and this is even more of a deception, is that when in the midst of all of that, my, my mantra getting up in the morning was please forgive me. I did that thousands of times, but yet I would put myself right back in a situation again to view it. November of 2009, the deception was found out. And it was at that moment that, that the only thing I've known for the last 16 years and five years of school has been church work. And so when I got home, uh, probably the first time I ever remembered, I, I wept bitterly in, in, in my home. And Karis was at work and it was just me and God. And I, it was probably two hours 
of how long I sit there and I cry. And honestly, I really truly believe that God was beginning a cleansing <laughs> from the, the, the sin at that point. And that was when it, that's when it all hit me at that point. In my 53 years of my life, I have never felt more free in that moment that I've ever had in my life. Period. I, I was free, finally, from something that had enslaved me for that long. The end of self-deception is the start of real change. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.